Welcome to the Iowa Journalist Podcast Series, presented by the University of Iowa School of Journalism and Mass Communications. I'm your host, Jack Martin. Recently, I sat down with Brian Eckdale, an associate professor at SJMC. He recently received a grant from the Department of Defense to study social media algorithms and radicalization. My name is Brian Eckdale. I'm an associate professor at the School of Journalism and Mass Communication. I've been here since 2011, so um, I'm entering into my 10th year here. Um, I teach courses mostly in digital media. I teach a combination of courses that are kind of conceptual courses, so thinking about digital media, being literate about the social and digital media environment we live in. Um, And then I teach a lot of skills-based courses as well. So um, I rotate in teaching our Introduction to Multimedia Storytelling course. Um, I also teach a video, an advanced video course, an advanced audio course, um, and then some other courses here or there to fill out the curriculum. And then I teach in the graduate curriculum as well, um, a course on kind of cultural studies in digital media, and then um, some of the um, core courses in understanding kind of theory and methods of graduate work. So you just got, you just received a grant to do some research. Could you tell us a little bit about what it is you're going to be researching and kind of how that came about? Sure. Yeah. So the, the grant is through the Minerva Research Initiative, which is funded by the Department of Defense. And the project is titled um, Personalization Algorithms and Online Radicalization. And what we're interested in studying is um, the ways in which people become more or less radicalized through their use of digital media and how that might interact with different psychological variables, right? So some variables that might be individual to that person, um, but also some sociological and cultural variables that might reflect kind of the communities that they're a part of. And the, I would say the impetus behind this project is the idea that, um, you know, as we are online and interact with algorithms, algorithms are filtering the content that we see and receive and interact with. And we wanna see in what ways do those algorithms make people more or less extreme in their views. Um, and so that's what we're gonna be looking at. So, um, you know, we, we define radicalization a bit differently than, um, you know, what we might see in a lot of like terrorism studies. Um, We're thinking about radicalization as uh, kind of a three um, pronged idea. One is the position someone holds on a topic. Um, So whether or not you hold a very centrist topic or you hold a very kind of extreme position. The second is the strength of your position. So whether you hold onto it very strongly and you are unwilling to consider other viewpoints Um, And then the third aspect of that is the tactics that you either participate in or endorse to to the end of your position, right? So do you believe in violent tactics to get your opinion across? So if we're thinking about an issue like um, immigration, right? So if we were breaking that down in those three ways, is your position very strongly that we can completely shut down the borders or very, oh, sorry, 
extreme in the sense completely shut down the borders or completely open the borders. That would be one variable. The second would be how strongly do you hold that opinion? Are you so certain that your opinion is right that you're unwilling to consider alternative viewpoints? And then the third part is, you know, what are you going to prove of, approve of to get those ends? Are you going to approve of violent means to enforce that viewpoint? And so what we're going to be looking at is people's viewpoints and how they re relate to these technological variables and things like that. Um, so that's kind of the, the premise of the study. There's a few different pieces of it. It's a three-year project, so, um, but that's kind of the core of what we're going to be looking at. When did you become interested in these algorithms and specifically, I guess, how they interact with social media and how they influence people's views? So my undergraduate degree is in communication, but also computer science. And I worked in IT for a couple of years. So I've always been really interested in digital media. Um, and, and in my independent research, um, I do a lot of international research um, and I study media production, but digital media is always a really kind of strong through line in the type of work I do. This particular research group started um, about four or five years ago when Tim Havens, who was in communication studies, was doing, uh, he was writing a research paper on um, Netflix's algorithm. And he became kind of interested in this idea of algorithm and the different ways that people study algorithms. So he, um, he started reaching out to people on campus he thought might be interested in having an interdisciplinary group to talk about algorithms. And so we had folks from uh, uh, communication sciences where Tim is, um, I became involved. There were folks from uh, political science, engineering, mathematics, um, computer sciences. And we all started getting together and just kind of talking about how do we think about algorithms in our various communities. And over time that um, group turned into a research group where there was about six of us who were interested in designing a truly interdisciplinary research project in the sense that it was going to take advantage of some of the methods and insights from different fields and try to pull those ideas together. And so we did a first study that was looking at um, personalization of Google News um, based on one's views on a topic. And so what we did is, is continuing with this immigration topic, we created two artificial users. They were, you know, we would call them bots essentially, right, is, is how people refer to them. Um, now, and one bot was trained to go visit a lot of content that was pro-immigration, and one bot was trained to go visit a lot of content that was anti-immigration. We then had those two bots run a bunch of searches on Google News, and then we compared the results of those searches to see, okay, does what kind of results does the pro-immigration bot see? What kind of results does the anti-immigration bot see to start to um, understand how Google might interpret your previous behavior to cater your results. So that was the first project. And then from there we thought, well, let's, you know, let's start thinking uh, about something that might be a bigger, you know, kind of a, a, um, a big shot project that we might be working on. And, and um, we had some exchange, uh, there was some collaborators who came and went and, and one of the people who joined our group um, is Rashab Nithyanan, who is in com, um, computer science. And he was really interested in radicalization and said, hey, would you guys be interested in doing something along that lines? And so we started kind of drafting out what a research project would look like 
and how we would be able to do this on a really large scale that would be truly interdisciplinary. And then we started looking at grants and thought, well, let's take a shot. You know, we've got an idea for a really big project. Let's see if anyone would be interested in funding this. And so that's kind of what the evolution of some of the initial interests, you know, it all started with Tim Haven sending out an email that was, hey, does anybody want to talk about some of this stuff? And then it evolved into a research group and then eventually, you know, uh, became what it is today with this big grant that we're working on. So what are some of the problems that you see with the way that social media algorithms are currently constructed? So there's a couple issues that are worth noting. And I think, you know, one of the big issues is that most of these algorithms are black boxes, meaning we don't really know what goes on inside them. And social media companies don't want to tell us what's going on inside them because they consider it their intellectual property, right? It's their proprietary software. If Google told you how Google works, they feel that anyone could just take that code and, and design their own Google. Same with Facebook, same with you know, all these other um, digital platforms we work with. The, the problem with that is we don't really know what that exchange looks like. It's you know when you go to your computer and you go to a website or a platform or one of these social media sites, you don't really know what are the mechanics behind the scenes that return the content back to you. So, you know, one, one way to kind of think about it, um, most people have a Facebook account. Now, when you go onto Facebook and you log in and you see your news feed, you're not seeing all of the content that all of your connections on Facebook are providing. You're seeing a small uh, filtered or curated amount of content that's sent to you. Well, why are you seeing this person posts and not this person's post? Why are you seeing um, this cousin's photos, but not this cousin's photos? Well, that's because behind the scene, there is a Facebook algorithm that's trying to understand you and your interests, and it's presenting you the content that it thinks you want to see. Or maybe more accurately, it's presenting you the content that it thinks will convince you to keep coming back to Facebook. That's the ultimate goal of Facebook is to have you spend more time on Facebook. And so if it's presenting you content that makes you want to go to Facebook, then it served its purpose. But as a user, I don't know why I'm seeing cousin Bill, but not cousin Steve, right? I'm not, I don't understand that process because that all happens behind the scenes. It's all part of a black box. So that's one issue is that we don't really know the decision-making process that is filtering this content for us. You know, another big issue that our group is concerned with is that all decision-making processes have biases to them, right? And what we, because these are black boxes, we don't know what biases are being coded into these algorithms. And for the most part, the programming that's being done in Silicon Valley is being done by people who have a similar way of thinking, right? This is all, most of it's coming from Silicon Valley. Most of it's coming from rich white men. And that influence comes down into the code that's written and into these decision-making processes that are being made. And so um, we're not necessarily seeing a um, diversity, you know, gender diversity. We're not seeing diversity, racial diversity. We're certainly not seeing international diversity. Um, 
And so the values that are encoded into these programs reflect a certain point of view. And so that's another issue. So we don't really know what's going on. And we know that the values are, you know, favoring one point of view. And so a lot of the research that's going on in algorithms right now is trying to understand, okay, how do these algorithms really work and whose biases are encoded into them? And, and you know, who's, um, whose point of view is being benefited, who is being um, disempowered through this process? So the algorithms, and you, I mean, you think that that feeds into this radicalization because the, they just keep picking up on these repeated behaviors. So when you're looking into certain things, it's just going to keep feeding you those things. And do you think that they get progressively more radical? Like these, they'll just keep straying further to one side of the issue? Yeah, so that's, that's the question that's really driving our study. So there's um, this concept in communication research called selective exposure. And the idea behind selective exposure is we tend to choose the content that reinforces our perspectives, right? So let's say I'm politically conservative. If I'm politically conservative, I'm gonna seek out content that is also politically conservative. I might be reading Fox News. I might be subscribing to the Wall Street Journal. I might be visiting blogs like Breitbart or Drudge or things like that. And then I'm continuing to see news content that reinforces my views. And that can, as a result, that can harden my point of view over time. So if we know that that exists to a certain extent, we're also, what our research group is trying to understand is how do algorithms play into that process? So imagine if you are on Facebook and you only click on politically conservative posts, Facebook's algorithm may think, oh, that user wants to see politically conservative content. We will give that user more politically conservative content. I will then click on more and I'm only being exposed to that. And so now I'm seeing less content that I disagree with and I'm choosing more content that I agree with. And so what our study is trying to do is understand one, is that process happening? And two, what are the effects it has on someone's point of view? And so a key part of our study is um, a longitudinal survey, which means that we're gonna survey the same people at two points in time. And at the first point in time, we're gonna ask them um, a variety of different things, but we're also gonna ask them their opinions on these four political issues. And we're gonna ask them again, what is, the, what is their position? What is the strength of position? And what kind of tactics would they approve of or use in um, service of that position? We're gonna then survey them a year later and ask those same questions. And so we'll be able to see their change in view over time. Does their position become more extreme? Does their position become stronger? Are they approving of more tactics that we would consider to be uncivil or even violent? That is the radicalization process. So if we find users that are becoming more radicalized, we can then look at some other variables in the survey to try to understand what is causing that. The other component of the study we're doing is we are, we're going to track some of these users, we're going to track what they do on the internet. We're going to have the ability to basically pull their behavioral digital trace data, so information about what they've done, and then we can connect that to those variables as well. So let's say we have users who do spend a lot of time visiting conservative media. 
what kind of impact has that had on their political views over a year? We'll be able to see those things. So that's those are some of the big questions that, that we're interested in looking at. So are we gonna combine this survey with this behavioral digital trace data? And then kind of the third piece of the puzzle is we're going to do interviews as well um, because I'm someone who, who prefers interviews as a methodology. And I think interviews are really good at understanding how people um, interpret their actions and how they can kind of talk through um, their process for making decisions. Yeah, that makes sense by just having them explain why they think, you know, what they think and I guess how they got to that point. I'm sure that that would help give a much clearer picture as opposed to just strictly looking at the algorithms because, you know, that's data and it does, I guess it does show behavior, I'm sure, but from the personal perspective of them speaking, I'm sure that just adds a completely other fold to the equation. Yeah, because you know, one of the things surveys are really good at is they ask the same questions of everybody. So you can do these comparisons across. Um, and those questions tend to be reducible to numbers somehow. And so you might ask someone, how strongly do you agree with this position on a scale from one to five? That makes it so that you can do these really interesting statistical analyses across. But, you know, when I'm, when I take a survey, I often find that it takes my nuanced opinions and it kind of simplifies them into a way that I wouldn't necessarily categorize them. And so the mm -hmm. interviews allow us to provide additional color. And so we, one of the things we're doing in these interviews is we're going to ask users to do some tasks and ask them to talk about it. So, you know, keeping with kind of the example of Facebook, if you were an interview participant, I might say, Jack, go to your Facebook page now and pull up your newsfeed. All right, tell me about some of the posts you're seeing right now. And if you see a post that is politically oriented in some way, I might say, all right, Jack, why do you think of all the posts that are out there in the world, you're seeing this one? You know, what, what would you do? Would you click on this? Would you like it? Would you comment? How would you interact with it and why? And, you know, our hope is to understand when people interact with political content in their daily lives, how do they respond to it? And what are some of the, the um, interpretive strategies they use to make sense of it? Strictly from a user perspective, being on, you know, I grew up essentially on social media at a certain point, starting in late middle school and then going through college, I've always had a Snapchat or an Instagram or a Twitter. I've never been too big on Facebook just because I feel like my specific age range was a little bit on the tail end of that explosion. But Twitter's definitely my most used social media platform. And just being on that from the start of the 2016 election to now, it feels like, and you know, you talk about radicalization and algorithms, it feels like especially now and over the last few years, I feel like 2016 really kind of kickstarted it. But now on Twitter, I'm seeing nothing that's really in the middle anymore. It's either super far left views or super far right views. And do you think that as this social media has continued to grow and not just the people on the platforms getting so polarized, but the people in power also becoming more polarized, do you think that that's just continuing to lend to the further radicalization of certain viewpoints? Yeah, I mean, I do think that there is, we're living in a period of um, increasing polarization and it's difficult to kind of untie the, the threads to figure out which causes which, right? You know, I think there is a certain amount of polarization that can be attributed to traditional media, right? The, the fragmentation of media environments. 
um, there's a certain amount of polarization can be attributed to um, kind of a pe people's emotional use of social media. You know, if I'm, I'm a big Twitter user as well, and the tweets that get a lot of um, attention and retweets and likes and things like that, or even ratios, right, are getting the comments are tweets that usually have very little nuance. They're, you know, extreme or strong point of views articulated mm -hmm. in, you know, 280 characters. And so there's a, certainly a thread of that. There are other kind of larger, you know, um, demographic and sociological issues that are driving this. So I think, I think technology is one factor in it. I'm not someone who believes that um, technology changes people as much as I believe people use technology to push, um, you know, the, the things that they want. So, you know, we're certainly seeing a rise in kind of uh, racial tensions is maybe the politest way, right? We're certainly seeing um, a lot of white, white supremacist right. content that an anti-black racism that is really out in the open. I don't think the internet created anti-black racism, right? But it has made it much more visible. Um, mm -hmm. and, and we certainly have had politicians who've made it more acceptable to express that. But these things ha have been working side by side. You know, in the early years of internet research, there was a lot of hopefulness of, you know, some of these early discussion boards and things like that, where you had marginalized communities who didn't feel like they could be themselves in their physical spaces they could be themselves in their online spaces. And, and there was a lot of really good research looking at queer communities, um, how they might feel that they were unable to be themselves in where they lived. Maybe they were closeted in their um, you know, everyday physical life, but they could go online and they could you know, explore and express their identity in a way that was really freeing. And I think that that was great, right? And there was a very kind of romantic view that went along with this. 20 years later, we start to see, oh, not only were the marginalized communities, these queer communities able to feel like they could express themselves more clearly, suddenly we feel we're seeing racist and white supremacists feeling like they can express themselves more freely. And so we're, we're getting kind of the, the toxic tail end of that um, openness that was something we celebrated maybe 20 years ago. And so I think there's a lot of different factors going on there. And, and I think algorithms are certainly a part of the process. Um, you know, again, an algorithm is just a, um, it's just a decision-making process, right? It's just, we, we use algorithms all the time. You know, imagine you are driving into a um, shopping mall parking lot and you're deciding where to park. You're processing an algorithm right now. You may be thinking, well, I really need to go to Target, but afterwards I need to go to the pet store. Where should I park? Oh, I like parking near the front, but there's always a lot more foot traffic and cars. If I park near the back, I can just park and get out. Or if I keep driving back and forth, I can look for the best spot. These are decision-making processes that we're making ourselves all the time. We don't, you know, we don't necessarily think that much about it, but that's essentially, it's a parking algorithm that we're processing. What's happening now is we're trying to code those into machines so that an automated, right, an autonomous vehicle can drive into a parking lot and figure out which parking spot should I take. 
So we're offloading some of these decision-making processes into onto machines. And so a lot of this research in algorithms is trying to make sense of, okay, well, where would that car park? And why would that car park there? You know, brought into a larger scale of why am I seeing this post on Facebook? Why is YouTube recommending this video to me? Why is Twitter recommending that I should follow these three users based on what I just clicked? Why is Google returning me these search results? These are all processes that are being happen kind of behind the scenes that we don't understand. And I don't think the effects of them are so huge that they're tearing apart the fabric of humanity. I think we're doing that on our own in a variety of other different ways. So going you know, through this research and how long does grant again? Is it three years? It's a three-year grant. So it just started in August. So, so we'll be working on this for a while. Okay. So who do you think by the end of it and when you have this data and you have more of an idea of how these algorithms are interacting with people's viewpoints, who do you think will benefit from this research? Well, this, you know, this is a grant funded by the Department of Defense. And so there is a program in the Department of Defense that funds social science research. And, um, you know, the Department of Defense has long funded, um, you know, engineering and um, more STEM-based research because that can mm-hmm. be used in all sorts of defense purposes. But I think there's also a recognition that, um, that people are important to understand in terms of national security and in terms of safety and health of democracy. And so in terms of beneficiary, the Department of Defense is obviously interested in benefiting from this work um, because they're funding it, you know, and, and basically better understanding how has the techn- technological environment changed the way people think and interact and what types of people might think or interact differently. You know, for, for the, us as researchers, you know, in addition to benefiting that mission, you know, we are, um, we're interested in kind of more broadly understanding the effects of these issues on humanity. And we, as a group of scholars, are particularly interested in systematic inequalities, sorry, systemic inequalities, things like racism, misogyny, um, xenophobia. We're interested in looking at how these longstanding inequalities um, can be affected by the technological change as well. So our hope is that by understanding these processes, we can better address or mediate some of the ways that technology can reinforce these inequalities. Thanks for listening. If you want to find out more, you can find us at clas.uiowa.edu backslash SJMC. And if you want to hear more of the podcast, we're available on your favorite streaming platform.